beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from the Rome, from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, Arabs. We hear them declaring that the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. God bless your his word. Thanks, Russell, for reading our passage for us this morning for choir. A beautiful song for kind of setting us up. Um, we're going to talk about Jesus sending the Holy Spirit this morning, Acts chapter 2. And uh, we're going to look at those first 13 verses. And as we do that, we're going to talk about when he sent the Spirit, how he sent the Spirit, and why he sent the Spirit, and what difference does that make to us, okay? Um, so that's kind of the way we'll work our way through it uh, this morning. So I'm a young officer in the Air Force. I'm a young captain. Now, some of you know this about me, that I, um, I'm not really a detail guy. Um, yeah, at all. In fact, so the statement, the devil is in the details would really, that would, that would be the, my expression as I think about details, right? It really is the devil. Uh, it's just not, I'm just, I'm not wired that way. It, it perhaps it's a leftover residue from my ADD childhood or something. Okay. Um, but whatever it is, it's kind of the reality. So then imagine me, I'm a young captain in the air force. And um, and one of the things that kind of happens on an Air Force base every spring is um, we go through the season of the uh, the national prayer breakfasts. OK, and and typically what you do is you get someone from the chaplain corps or a, a big name to come to your base and speak. And so I'm at our base. It's the first year that I'm really kind of I've been there a full year. I've put on captain. I'm a, I'm a brand new a young captain and a young chaplain, and I get tasked to carry out the National Day of Prayer, prayer breakfast. And, oh, by the way, we've invited the Air Force Chief of Chaplains, a two-star general, to come to our base, okay? Now, let me tell you how this goes. So about six months out, you you get the, you know, you put your request in, and they come back and say, all right, uh, chief of chaplains is coming. This is the day or the vice chief. And in this case, it was the two star. And so you begin the process of working. And what you do is you're putting together this whole time what's called a staff summary sheet. All right. And what this summary sheet is, is the details on absolutely 
everything that is going to happen during his visit. From the moment the plane lands, who's driving the car, what car, where is he going, who is he meeting, the biographies of every significant officer he is going to encounter on your base. Because think about it. He's a two-star coming to a base. Most bases in the Air Force are run by colonels, all right? So you have a wing commander. Um, you're bringing in a two-star general. The plane's going to have two stars on it. It's typically a big deal, okay? And um, every event he goes to, you have to have a protocol officer that's making all the arrangements. There's going to be a flag. They play ruffles and flourishes. They do all of these things. And you're in charge. You are the one that has to run every bit of that. And, and what you do is you produce the staff summary sheet, which gets sent to him about two weeks before he's on the ground at your base, so that... He can leaf through it, read the biographies, kind of know the gist. I mean, we're talking, you have to know what kind of crackers does this guy want in the basket in the room in his hotel, okay? That's the kind of detail we're talking. And so I did it. I actually pulled off this event. Um, A minor miracle, all right? But he arrives, and so here's kind of the way it goes, though. He gets there, and I I shook his hand one time at the prayer breakfast. Other than that, everything else, just it just ran itself by that point. And so I don't even, he has no idea who I am other than he saw me, I shook his hand once, and he asked me a couple of questions, and that, I mean, that is the extent of my interaction. Except for the day after he left, And I've gone back to the hotel, and they have the basket that was in the room with the leftover stuff. And I went to kind of claim that for the chapel and everything. And stuck down inside that basket is my staff summary sheet with some notes. (laughs) And the chief of chaplains for the Air Force had gone through the staff summary sheet, read it in every horrifying detail, And he circled all of my errors. Now, I know, you're thinking, that's terrible. Why would you, why would you do that? But the note was, the note was, don't forget the details. And all he was doing was, listen, everything else was great. He didn't, this, this wasn't a bad event, but he was teaching a young captain, don't forget the details. They matter. The details really are important, okay? The misspellings and the, you know, wrong times and, you know, the things that I had done that, that, that were in there, okay? Those potentially could, you know, prove to be disastrous in one way or another. Um, I, I've heard another talk that was given several years ago by General Walsh, and, and, and he was the Air Force chief of, chap, uh, chief of the Air Force, and he was talking about, about accidents in aircraft, and how some of those accidents are just a mere fraction of a second. The devil is kind of in the details, right? And, um, and that's what he was trying to teach me. You know, we're coming to a passage in Acts 2. One of the interesting things about it is the detail that is there that communicates to us that God notices the details, the way that he has mapped out and planned out what would happen and when it would happen and why it would happen the way that it did. 
all of these little details wrapped up in Acts chapter 2, these first 13 verses, they really do matter. And God gets them all right. They're all there, and they're wonder- they come together in a wonderfully linked up way. And so let's just talk about this. When did he send the Spirit, and, and what difference does that make? So what we read here right out of the gate is verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, everybody was together in one place. Now that everybody who's together is probably the 120. All right? This isn't just the, the, the uh, 12 apostles now. This is the 120. So these are kind of the folks that are, they've been there and they've, they, you know, they, they believe, they're trusting, they've seen uh, the ascension and all of these things. And so they are all gathered together, and they're gathered together on the day of Pentecost, which just happens to be what is referred to as the Feast of Weeks. It's one of the seven Jewish feasts, okay? And this is where that detail begins to kind of come in. The spring feasts went this way. You had Passover, then you had the Feast of Unleavened, so you had uh, Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the next day. And then after that, you have um, the Feast of the First Fruits. And then 50 days later, you get the fourth feast, which is the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, as it trans- uh, translates in uh, the Greek. Now, um, those coincided, okay, with Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus was crucified on the Passover. He was in the grave for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then he rose again from the dead on the Feast of the First Fruits. Now, what difference does that make? It makes a difference because God is communicating something in the fact that those Jewish feasts existed and Jesus' life and this, these events at the end of his life all coincided with those exact feasts. Jesus being crucified on the, on the Passover, all of, that, all of that detail comes together in a, in a really beautiful picture. Um, and, and there's kind of a double significance as you think about uh, Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks happening those 50 days later. And, and how did exactly did that line up with the things that are taking place and the pouring out of the Spirit? And here's the first one. That is the final celebration of the wheat harvest. Okay, so that celebration that they do 50 days later is a celebration of all of the crops having finally come in. That's a significant point, okay? Pentecost, the pouring out of the Spirit happening on that day. The second thing is that that day also commemorated the day that God gave the law to the Israelites at Mount Sinai. So there are two things bound together in Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks. The first one is that is that celebration of the harvest finally having come in, and it is also a celebration of God having poured out his law, if you will, on the people at Mount Sinai. Now, so think about this. Here's how it happened. God's people at the Feast of the First Fruits, okay, would be, that is right at the start of the harvest. So 
Feast of the first fruits, what that is, is they've taken, they're, they're not allowed to eat anything until that feast. So, here's the way it kind of transpires. You've gone Passover, or, I mean, uh, the, the, uh, the feast of, um, uh, um, Pentecost, alright, <laughs> has occurred. You've gone all the way through the season. You're, you're eating, basically they're consuming the crops that had been raised during that period. Then, they're not to go and re-harvest anything until they have this feast of the first fruits. At which point, they come in and they bring the, the first sheaf of, of wheat, the first grains of wheat, and they bring those in and they're presented to the Lord. And the Leviticus kind of spells out how that all happens. Now they can consume the food. So that's why it's the feast of the first fruits. They bring the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. They offer them to Him. And, and now think about this. This is a real, you know, they, they have to wait. They can't just go and make the harvest. They have to wait until they get to that point where they can offer the first fruits to God and then they can begin to consume this new harvest that's coming in. So they've waited all year for that. And, and it really shows kind of their trusting God for his provision in their lives that he is going to provide for them. He's going to, they're going to have enough. And then they have to give up the first fruits of that harvest to him saying, essentially, thank you, Lord, for what you have blessed us with. Thank you for your provision in our lives. And so that's what they would have been doing at the Feast of the First Fruits. Fifty days later, they celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which is the conclusion of the harvest period. So you have the Feast of the First Fruits, then you have the Feast of Weeks 50 days later, which celebrates in that period the harvest that God is going to give. So think about now what that is communicating when we think about Jesus being raised from the dead on the Feast of the First Fruits. He is, Paul says, the first from among the dead. Jesus is the first fruit from among the dead. And so he's raised on that day as a celebration of what God is going to do in our lives. But there's more as you move forward. So 50 days later, we get to this point in Acts 2. The day of Pentecost comes. The Feast of Weeks is happening. And what does God do? He pours out His Spirit on the people. He raises a new people. Essentially, He is... Essentially, he's calling them out of darkness. He is showing they are his people. They are a reflection, if you will, of the harvest that is eventually going to come when all peoples come to faith in Christ, those whom he's calling. You see what's happening? So it's significant that the Lord pours his spirit out on this day. And what he's saying to them is, you are, you are the first. And, and, and it's remarkable because as you read through the second half, uh, the middle section of chapter 2, is this picture as Peter preaches the sermon and you get to the end of it. And what do you read? How many people come to know Christ that day? 3,000 are added to their number 
on that day, the Feast of Weeks. And so this is just, this is God's timing. I mean, this, this is Him essentially saying to them, listen, I'm in this. I'm in these details. I'm controlling them. Jesus is the fulfillment of those feasts. He is giving the new meaning to them. He is he's fleshing them out, if you will. And, and he's showing us that his promises, his plan, all of that is coming to fruition. It's going to happen. And so the timing is perfect, exactly the way he wanted it to be, to communicate those things. Now, you and I kind of, okay, so the feasts line up with Jesus. But think about that original audience. So Russ read the passage for you. One of the things that you'll notice as you look down at the people, right, all of them were hearing in their own language. The Parthians, the Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, uh, uh, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, uh, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, both Jews and converts to Judaism. One of the this feast, okay, the festival of weeks, the feast of weeks is one of the feasts in which every which they're required to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so they've made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem because they're there to celebrate the feast of weeks, the very day that God pours out his spirit on the 120, and they begin to speak and proclaim the good news in languages. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that here in a minute. But that's the significance, right? He knows the timing. He understands he's planned it all in. He, he's baked it into the cake so that it comes out exactly the way he intends for it to come out. And it's really, really uh, quite neat, if you will. Additionally, just remember... They associated this feast with the giving of the law. So at the same time, they're reflecting back on the Exodus event, the Passover, and God meeting them and providing for them the law. Which, did it bring life or did it bring death? What does the law do for you? Does it save you? No, it shows your need. And so all this time, they've had this law. It's, it's written upon their hearts. He's given it to them at Sinai. They've confused the whole thing. They've turned the law into their you know, yellow brick road to God. And it's not that at all. And so here, at the very same time, they're celebrating the giving of the law, which was death to them because they couldn't keep it. He gives them the opportunity to see. He, he opens, if you will, the eyes of their heart by pouring out His Spirit on them on that very day. So there's all of this bound up in that one essential day as they gathered on the day of Pentecost in that room. So let's talk about, because it's critical how He did it, but um, I mean, uh, when He did it, but so much more as well about how He did it. And you'll see verse 2. They're all gathered. It's Pentecost. Verse 2 tells us that there's a sound like a blowing of a violent wind. It comes from heaven. It fills the house where they're sitting. And they all saw what seemed to be, that's key, okay? It wasn't, but it seemed to be, okay? So it's some sort of strange 
fire, if you will, which they they just are seeing and observing, and they it looks like fire, and it looks like it split up, and it and it all lighted on all of them as they were there in the room. Um, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them, and and as that happened, verse four, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak and other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, what is all of that about? And again, this is a connection, because as you work your way back through the Bible, what you'll see is that time and time again, the Holy Spirit makes Himself known in some visible, audible, touchable manifestations, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Sometimes He's the pillar of cloud. Sometimes He's the pillar of fire. Uh, fire. In, in Acts chapter 4, we've got buildings shaking. Um, at Jesus' baptism, he comes down in the form of a dove. Uh, in chapter 6, we read that, that Stephen's face was like that of an angel shining as uh, some reflection of the Spirit in his life. In chapter 16, there's an earthquake. So the Spirit comes and gives us these kind of manifestations Okay? He, he stoops, if you will, to give us visible, audible, touchable, tangible kinds of, you know, meaningful demonstrations of His presence and His power. But the Spirit isn't any of those things. He isn't fire. He's, he's not a dove. He just uses those. The Spirit has used those throughout time to, to communicate all those. Things, to communicate that power and that presence to us. He's not a warm glow. He's not a dove. He's not a wind. He's not a fire. But he uses those manifestations. And, and, and he asks, essentially, you know, part of this is, don't confuse him with them. Don't confuse the Spirit with the manifestations of the Spirit. He's free. He comes when He pleases in the, the way that He pleases in order to do what it is He desires and the Father and the Son desire to have happen in us. And in this instance, that was to give them voice so that they could proclaim the good news to all of these pilgrims who had made their way to Jerusalem. Wrapped up in that, he gives them this ability to speak in these known languages. So, listen, and I don't know, you know some of you may come from backgrounds in which tongues is, is a part of the equation. And I'm not going to tell you this morning that the Spirit doesn't do that. Um, but in this instance, okay, the things that are happening here as the Spirit has come and made Himself known to the 120, it's clearly... Okay? It's known languages. It's languages that are spoken in the world. And that is for the purpose of allowing all of these pilgrims that have come from all over the place to hear the message and then do what with it? Take it back home. And so the Spirit gives us supernatural ability for that to happen. This isn't a prayer language. This isn't a language that, you know, is, is um, unintelligible. It was intelligible to those who were there. And they were blown away by it. They were trying to figure this out. Like, what in the world is going on? And that's where you get the interesting little statement in verse 13. Some were making fun of them and said they've, 
They've obviously had too much to drink, too much wine. And Peter counters that later and says, are you kidding? It's morning. <laughs> Some of you all have been in an airport. I don't think it makes a whole lot of difference for people that are traveling sometimes. Nine o'clock in the morning and the bars like hopping, you know, as you walk through an airport. Anyways, um, I digress. But um, so that is the that is the how tongues of fire, all of these things representing replicating, if you will, the way in which the spirit in times past has made himself known to God's people. And he does it again right here in the room. Fire and wind. Two, two ways in which he has displayed himself numerous times down through Scripture. Why is that helpful? It's helpful for, because for them in the room, somehow there would have been a connection. They would have started to understand, okay, this is, this is different. They, they you know, um, not totally getting everything, but we know that God often has shown himself down through history in fire. Moses, the, the burning bush, um, the, the, the pillar of fire that, that led them at night and, and several other locations and things that, that, that have happened. And so all of those things just give them this connectivity. This is God. This is God at work in our lives and this is the Spirit being poured out on His people. Why? Uh, why, did he, why did He do all this? He did all of this because this is the beginning of the church, if you will. This is the church's birthday. That's one way to think about it. Now, this is Israel morphing into the church. And that's why you get all of these amazing connections with the Jewish calendar and with uh, Yahweh and the way he interacted with his people. All of those connections are there because it's the church is being transformed out of, becoming um, from the people of Israel. So it's the, the new Israel is the church. And so those connections are happening for them. And, uh, and it's giving the Jewish hearer, Something to hold on to. They have a connection with, with the past and with the things that are familiar to them. And so it's the, it's the birthday of the church. And it is the period in which the great evangelization of the world begins. You and I can trace our lineage, if you will, our spiritual lineage, to the day of Pentecost. Because this is the day in which God pours His Spirit in a new way. The Spirit's been active all along, but He's pouring His Spirit out in a new way upon His people for a new time, for a new gospel message. And so he, they have that message. Peter is going to preach that message directly following the pouring out of the Spirit. And people are going to hear that message and begin to respond to it. And then, as the 3,000 that are there in the city respond, what do they do? They leave and they go home and they share that good news with others. And instantly, you have this massive transfer of the gospel all throughout the known world. 
And of course, as we'll see through the rest of the book of Acts, then Paul begins to make his missionary journeys along with some others, and they reinforce this gospel spread that that begins right here in Acts chapter 2. That's why God did it the way he did it. Because he's building his church. I mean, what you're seeing is, right, the culmination of just about every bit of biblical history has come to Acts chapter 2. And we're also getting some pieces, parts and pieces of Jesus' words, his affirmations to his apostles. I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And here it is. He grows it. And he does it supernaturally. Now, um, he, he does it in a way that only he can do. One of the challenges here is, how do we think about this section? Do we make it normative for the Christian life? Okay, so is this normative? Is this the way it's supposed to work? We're all going to come, we're going to gather together, and we're going to earnestly, Lord, we, we, you know, we would probably be freaked out um, if you know the wind started blowing in here and the and the tongue tongues of fire fell on all of us. But you know what? No less significant is the promise that you have already received the Spirit of God as you have come to faith in Christ. That Spirit that lighted upon them is present in you as you trust in Christ. And as we are all built together, remember what we read in in the rest of the epistles, we're being built together not as a physical house, but as a spiritual house. We are the dwelling place of God. And this is kind of that first inauguration of that, if you will. This is it. This is it, that happening for the people at Pentecost exactly the way it still happens for you and I today. And so I think bound up in that is really the so what. The so what is, okay, as you and I look back on Pentecost, we look back on the pouring out of the Spirit, we're not just looking back. We're looking forward. We're looking at ourselves. Because the same thing that happened then has already happened now. It's happened to us as a people. This group, this church, this body, as people join it and become a part of it, we partake in that joint work of the Spirit together. We possess the Spirit. We We are driven by the Spirit, convicted by the Spirit, comforted by that Spirit that Jesus promised and then poured out on His people. Now, what does that do for us? Well, one of the things I think that that kind of comes out of that is what a a tremendous comfort to see the promises of Jesus fulfilled in this Pentecost moment for you and I. To know he said he was going to do it, and he did it. He said he was going to do it into the future, and guess what? He's doing it. Some of you, it's not just here, it's not just us, it's other local bodies that are gathering. It's bodies that are gathering around the world. It's churches that are being planted. It's new people. There are people coming to faith in the Lord Jesus all around the globe. And why? Because the spirit that was at work at Pentecost is still at work today. 
because the period of great evangelization, which began on the day of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, is continuing even now and will continue until the day of Christ Jesus. And you and I get to participate. What, a, what an amazing period to be alive in, to see the church grow in, to be a part of that that growth. Mike, I, really, I appreciate you being here. And the work of M&A, as he talked about it, right? A deed ministry that opens up avenues to what? The word ministry. And that's what, that's what M&A Disaster Relief is all about and, and the myriad of other ministries that we're involved in. It's not just driving a hammer, uh, a nail with a hammer. It's, it's not just building a shed. I mean, if all you want to do is build sheds, you can go build sheds anywhere you want to build sheds. We're building sheds to give to people, to give them avenues to share the gospel. It's a word ministry. And it began at Pentecost. And you and I, Get to be a part of it. Where do you find yourself? How, how do you see yourself fitting into that? Where are you connected in the life of the church? To word ministry, to deed ministry, to see the work of the Spirit in the world today. Where is that happening for you? My encouragement to you is find a place. Find a place where you get to be a part of that sort of work in the life of the church, be it building other believers up, be it spreading the gospel out in the world, be it whatever it is, where are you finding your niche to be a part of this work? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, the history. We thank you for the way in which you worked all of those details together to give us this amazing picture of Christ as the fulfillment of all things. Although we don't understand all of that, we don't, we maybe just don't get it quite the way the original Jewish audience got it, but we know that you are at work. We know that it's so very meaningful in a number of ways. Let us see and know and sense all of that. And then, Father, I pray you'll be at work in our hearts, allowing us the privilege through the work of your Spirit to be involved in the building of your church. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.